because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. No, but you do the intro where you explain what this podcast is. Well, so. I don't even, I do it. It changes every time. It does change but, every time. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, this is Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. Today we're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. There will be people on the outside who will not understand the condition you men have. Now upon your shoulders rests the responsibility of a post-war world. You can smile. You can start a business filling station, grocery, or hardware store. Get a few acres of land and raise some chickens. You have a break coming? 10 minutes. If the average civilian had been through the same stresses that you have been through, undoubtedly, they too would have developed the same nervous condition. You must understand. You want to get the late break. How did I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol. What do you do? I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man, just like you. <laughs> He's been writing all night. You seem to inspire something in him. What we will do now will urge you toward existence within a group, society of family. Now, today we have a very special guest with us, uh, hailing from... Hunter College, he's a, where he's a professor of philosophy. We have my friend Dan Harris. Hi. Hi, Dan. So um, the, the way I, I see it is there are three sort of leads in this, in this movie. You have uh, Joaquin Phoenix playing Freddie Quell. Uh, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd. And you have Amy Adams as Peggy Dodd, uh, his wife. And um, Lancaster Dodd here is basically a cult leader. Uh, his wife is Peggy Dodd. And uh, together they are working on, when we meet them, working on this second book, the follow-up to his first uh, uh, you know, best-selling book, which has laid out a kind of method for exploring our past lives. And they basically run into, their paths intertwine with Freddie Quell, who is basically aimlessly walking through the world at this point. And, um, and then the movie sort of plays out and then there's this all this conflict and um, love that grows between them. Um, so, so Dan, so uh, you suggested this movie and I'm curious, uh, do you, is there any, do you have like a, a history with this movie? Like what was like your first experience with it or? Uh, yeah, you know, what, I mean, what, you know, I, I first you saw it? it during its initial theatrical release. I saw it with our mutual friend, Matt Moss and another friend and we, you know, it was one of those movies where we walked out of the theater and had, you know, a two hour conversation hmm. about hmm. it because it was just had infected our minds. And I thought about it for the next several weeks, like frequently. And I very quickly managed to get my hands on a copy of it that had fallen off the back of a truck on the internet. <laughs> and I um, watched it several more times and, nice. you know, really, thought about it a lot and it, I don't know it, it's just more than very than most of the other movies I've seen it it just kind of got in my head and got the wheels turning in a way that I thought was really enjoyable and productive 
This this movie lives in a folder on my computer called, you know, rewatchable, uh, <laughs> along with, you know, the big Lebowski and a few other things. Yeah. And um, <laughs> just I think not that I want to rewatch the entire movie over and over again, but specifically mm. the opening, you know, 15 minutes or something, mm. I just find incredibly comforting and satisfying to look at. It's just really beautiful and it's fascinating. And the acting is just like, it's just, you feel like even if you had just witnessed somebody acting like this in the subway or something and you didn't know why <laughs> you could just stare <laughs> at it all day. It's like, uh, it's incredible. I think. Let's talk about the intro. So, so the intro we we meet Freddie Quill, who is coming back from World War II, I guess, on a on a boat. Yeah, he's he's in the South Pacific theater, yeah. uh, you know, serving on some kind of navy ship. Yeah, and he we see him. I mean, th- to me, this his behavior in this on the beach uh, really feels directly an homage to 2001 uh so he's he's we see him beating open a a coconut with a with a machete and then we see some men like wrestling like they're you know like they're the apes in 2001 um and then and and he himself even his his throughout the movie but there in particular he's always sort of hunched over like and like he's like an ape right like he's almost like dragging his knuckles on the ground um in this kind of contorted way. Um, then we see him masturbating into the ocean. He's mm-hmm. def- he's sort of like def- defiling this sand, this woman made out of sand, the sand yeah, I mean, sculpture it, of a it woman. It starts out as a joke, but he just gets totally carried away and it stops yeah. being funny for all the other yeah. sailors like many seconds before he, he gets bored with it, right? Like he, he just takes it too far. But they're, yeah. but they're also clearly used to this from him, right? Like they're not yeah. like- they're Nobody not like, bats an eye. Doing? Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, that's Freddy, right? Which yeah. is an incredibly telling detail, I think. Yeah, and then he, and then what does he do? He like, he like, he, we see him lowering himself into the into the bowels of the ship and basically cracking open an unused bomb and getting whatever the bomb juice out of it, the lighter <laughs> fluid. I read about this. Fuel. It's it, it was called torpedo juice, and really, it was a thing. <laughs> so the the torpedoes were powered by a kind of ethanol uh, alcohol fuel. And oh, it wow. was and it was quite common initially for the soldiers to drain out the fuel and drink it and get hammered. Mm. And so eventually the Navy started kind of intentionally tainting it with uh, other chemicals that were designed to make it unpalatable and poisonous so that the soldiers <laughs> wouldn't drink it. But then, of course, they wow. found workarounds and filtered it and figured out how to decant it. And so, <laughs> you know, Freddie's introduced to, to us as somebody who is willing to go to very great lengths to get a buzz, you know, he's, 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 but, but so I think this is, this might be one of the stories that, um, that Paul Thomas Anderson heard from, I forget which cast member of Boogie Nights, uh, hmm. who had, who had been in the Navy during the second world war, but the, the, it was a real, it was a real thing. Wow. wow. I did not know that. That's so, so crazy. Dan, so for you, this sequence is comforting. So is it just as the aesthetics of it? Like, what about this? Because he's he's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of base. <laughs> so I'm, kind oh, of, yeah, I'm completely. curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I just think the shots are really beautiful. The opening yeah. shot with the ocean receding. And then I think it comes back at the end. Yeah. I just think it's incredibly gorgeous. And it. I don't know if you've ever been on a ship and looked off the back, but it's just like it's a very special place to be. And it feels kind of lonely, but not in a bad way. And I, I don't know that I just found it to be an incredibly striking image to begin. 
And then I just think, again, watching Freddie do his animalism in front of the camera is just fascinating. I mean, to me, it's not just that he's acting like an ape. In fact, that's clearly very intentional, Um, Mm -hmm. not just as an homage to, I think you said Planet, wait, 2001, 2001, yeah. Yeah. So so I think that's right, and I hadn't put that together. But there's also, um, there's some interview footage with Paul Thomas Anderson where he talks about the fact that they had been watching this this animal documentary and the first scene in this documentary was of one of those monkeys in Japan that go in the hot springs and it was the monkey kind of like falling asleep in the hot springs and opening and closing its eyes and the so the first that first shot of Freddy where the bottom half of his face is occluded and you see the top half and his eyes are opening and closing it's like it's like a perfect recreation of this I shot see. from wow. this animal. I mean, it's very clear that they're trying to represent him as this human animal. And I, and to me, like, that's a Im- very impart- important part of his character, right? So later in the film, one of Lancaster Dodd's catchphrases, one of his mantras is, man is not an animal, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that, uh, we, you know, we sit far above that crowd, et cetera. And... I mean, I think part, an, uh, an important part of their relationship is that Freddie presents himself as a potential counterexample to Lancaster Dodd's kind of grand <laughs> metaphysical system. And that's why part of why he works so hard practicing his mind control techniques on right. Freddie because he needs to, you know, it's like a difficult case for him that he wants it's to overcome. project. Yeah. And so I, I think the fact that he's introduced to us is this kind of like ape in human clothing with like deadly technology surrounding him is like a really not a not a coincidence it's a very crucial part of this theme in the movie those shots are so beautiful too i i know what you mean about them being comforting and and you get flashes of freddy on the boat throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. um and they're always yeah there's something about the light to the end and the quiet just the sound of the ocean waves in the background and mm-hmm. and you get the feeling too that he's comforted by yeah. the memories of being on that ship and like and being completely apart from society. He, yeah, yeah. He, he can be Freddy. <laughs> he comes. I mean, we come back to those shots again and again throughout yep. the movie, especially during the processing scene. Um, we come back to them and we come back to it. I think towards the end as well. Um, they're just like intercut. It's mm-hmm. it's it's almost yeah. like it doesn't it doesn't play any narrative purpose. It's just intercut as a as just like a memory that's happening in his mind at currently oh i think it's i think it's an important narrative purpose right so if you think about what processing is for the cause right it's it's this and and it's based on uh the scientology equivalent um, auditing is that what yeah, it's auditing, called in science? exactly yeah. so and that and that goes back to the dianetics era the pre-scientology era that is that this is sort of connecting up to but the the whole theory behind auditing right is that you've got these kind of negative memories either from earlier in your life or from past lives and they're just like interfering with you being your best self D- don't quote me on this don't <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't don't repeat this on your scientology exam but um, <laughs> but 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 you've got these engrams these kind of negative memories and mm. lancaster dodd talks about you know negative emotions and negative memories and banishing those to become our perfect selves and it's really clear that that is connected in this movie to PTSD, right? Because, um, you know, the thing that Freddie winds up doing as soon as he's 
out of the ship is he's in a PTSD hospital in, I think, San Francisco. And, and so the fact that there are these flashes of old memories that show up for him at crucial moments later in the film have to be, I, th- I think it's probably something about that, right? And, and it is connected to the fact that he's attracted to the cause in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, notably, um, so this pushes it forward a bit. Um, the, when he's at the hospital and he's having the, he's talking to the therapist, it's just clearly not going anywhere. He's holding everything back. He's, he's kind of dodging the questions, but compare that to the scene later on when he gets the informal processing from Lancaster Dodd, which is very similar in a lot of ways. It's this very similar interview setting. A lot of the same topics arise stuff about his sweetheart and the letter, but then he has this real breakthrough with Dodd. And so, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that again, to, to bring this back to where we started, the fact that he's having all these flashbacks to the ship, to the site of his trauma that has caused his PTSD is, is, you know, it's part of the explanation for why he is at home in the cause to the extent that he is, I would say. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I, so I definitely think they are representations of what his like, a current mental state. So he's, he's, what he's processing are these memories. But it's interesting that you brought up PTSD, because I think that, so that is, I mean, Laura, this is something Laura was, was, was interested in as well. um, uh, Because some of the dialogue comes explicitly from um, uh, a movie, a documentary that was made and about like basically with these guys coming back and, and show that really ended up showing them uh, really basically shell shocked and full of PTSD. But it's interesting because I don't feel for myself that Freddie is actually suffering from PTSD. Mm -hmm. So there are two two reasons that I I, I sort of thought about this. So for one is that the memories that we have are all these very peaceful ones. They're just like ones of total tranquility, like like at the beginning of the movie. Um, And and we never actually see anything like when any, as far as we could tell, he maybe never even saw combat, right? As far as the movie is concerned. He does Um, admit at one point in that, auditing or processing session that he ki- he killed people in war. Right, um, I see. And he does, uh, and, and then I think in some ways the most traumatic thing about his service for him was that it, it, it became this excuse to escape from his relationship with his sweetheart, right, with, mm. with, with what's-her-name. That's the thing that I think is causing him the most trauma. Mm-hmm. It's this isolation from human society that uh, is represented by this. And, and, you know, surely for lots of people who fight in wars, that's a big part of the, what's traumatic about it is that they're, you know. Interesting. I had been thinking about maybe the opposite, that maybe um, being apart from society, maybe not apart from people, because he is surrounded by the other sailor sailors, but it's its own society, I suppose, in that sense. And he doesn't um, have to sort of suffer under the same expectations that he does when he comes back to the mainland and comes back to the U.S. So I was kind of thinking that I, that like just being literally floating on the ocean was like a freedom for Freddie. Um, but but yes, it does. It is the reason he is separated from Doris. Mm hmm. Well, so it's complicated. I, yeah, so that was going to be the second point. Then, oh, that's good. You, you had anticipated my, my thought. So that was the, the exact thing is, is if there is, I feel like if there is a PTSD, it's like the PTSD of coming home. Mm-hmm. It was like coming home and having to be like, wait a second, not somebody's not telling me what to do all the time. And suddenly like, you're just like, do find a job and like be a normal person. And he's just like, that's not me. Like I 
don't, I don't fit into this society at all. In this weird sense, I want to be back in the war. And, and the, almost the first thing he does when he comes back, um, it, after he sees, uh, his, 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 Doris? Uh, Doris, yeah, the the girl he's he's been who's been waiting for him, uh, is he gets right back on a boat mm-hmm. and he goes right back out because I feel like he it's like he can't he can't deal with society or something like that. I mean, I'm not a PTSD expert. Don't write this on your (laughs) PTSD, on your psychology 101 exam. Not a Scientology expert, not a PTSD expert. Okay, noted. The philosophy philosophy expert, expert, though. We'll (laughs) quote you on the philosophy, Dan. (laughs) That's right. Um, That's right. We just got to get to, you know, Grice and then we'll be good. So what I was going to say is I'm not a, you know, I don't know that much about PTSD, but my understanding is that it's very, it very commonly manifests itself in the way that you describe, right? It's yeah. that it, you know, it, it's like you turn, you've, we've turned people into these like killing machines whose, mm-hmm. whose normal adherence to societal norms have been very intentionally relaxed yeah. and messed with so that they can shoot people. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then they experience all these crazy things with their other soldiers and then once you take somebody out of that context that they've been sort of they had their mind rearranged in in the service of, um, it's just really hard for people to readjust. And uh, I, again, I'm not I'm sure that's not all there is to it, but um, I, I've to my understanding, a very common symptom of PTSD is yeah. the desire to go back into combat, to reenlist and to mm-hmm. re- return to, to the field. And I, I mean, you know, another, I think, common symptom of PTSD is substance abuse. And I think that there can be very little doubt yes. <laughs> that Freddie suffers from some of the most um, over-the-top substance abuse problems that have ever been put on <laughs> film. <laughs> you know, like he's, yeah. he's just like opening up medicine cabinets and chugging whatever he happens to find inside oh and God, like mixing up. Fluid. Yeah, mixing up chemicals in, oh. a, in a dark room, you know. And, so gross. and not only that, but he's a sort of artiste when it comes to this, right? Like, and, and that yeah. was a skill that he learned in the Navy, right? Having to filter whatever poison out of the torpedo fuel yeah so i mean again i I, whether we want to call it ptsd or not it's just really clear that i'm sure he wasn't like a normal dude when he went into the navy but but surely it has also left a pretty big impact on his psyche and that is being worked out throughout the rest of the film i guess that's what i think is is that's the that's the contra point is is just that Mm -hmm. i wasn't totally sure how much of it is he was kind of a normal guy and then the army messed him up and now he's suffering from PTSD and a weirdo or whether, and I think this is just the alternative I was, I think maybe Laura as well was, was floating is that no, he was a weirdo and the army was the first time he actually felt normal. And now he's back because he, there's no more war. So now he's back in the society that he doesn't want to be in and he's, and he hates it. He doesn't, he, you know, he's looking for another master to serve effectively. Um, And um, so it's, that's what I just wasn't, you know, I'm, the label PTSD, who knows? I'm also, I have sure. no, no idea what, what PTSD actually stands for. So, um, but don't worry, we're going to continue to go down the armchair psychology oh, yeah. of, of Freddie <laughs> Quell throughout this podcast. So if you didn't like us misunderstanding PTSD, just be prepared for more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking too about, um, about the, about the, the interview from the interview that was largely lifted from the John Houston documentary, I suppose. Um, but they talk about, you know, the reason he might've been there was because he had this crying spell, right? That's why he got sort of his name got added to the list. So they, they could 
study him in the VA hospital before releasing him. And he's like, no, I didn't cry. I didn't cry. And I was thinking about like, there's another layer too of like the expectations of masculinity at this time. And there's a couple of different ones. There's the familial ex- expectations that he comes home and he like wants to have that he becomes part of a family that becomes a patriarch of a family. But there's also the part that is what the Navy has, um, has bred and, and nurtured is that the part where he doesn't have any emotions that he is a killing machine, like Dan said, and that that's the part of him. He's like, I didn't cry. That's the part that like makes it f- okay and funny when he's, you know, messing around with the sand lady. Um, and there's more parts of him, I think that fit in more easily to that version of masculinity, but also like perhaps he does, he does have, he does have feelings. He loves Doris and he, and he, in his own complicated way, yeah. and he can't really talk about it in the context of the Navy. So he's sort of torn in between these different versions of masculinity and different like world societal, you know, standards. I think it's pretty notable the degree to which, so I, I watched the, that section of the Houston film too. And I think it's pretty notable the degree to which the way that, although, although some of the lines are lifted directly from the film, the way that Freddie, the way that Joaquin yeah. Phoenix plays it yeah, is pretty different. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So, so in the original interview, the the patient is like cr- breaking down crying and, and he's apologizing for crying and he's just really earnest. And but Freddie is just completely defensive and evasive. And again, I think that underscores the degree to which this uh, treatment that he's getting is just, you know, it's not cutting it. And and I think, again, that sets the stage for him to be to to be given some other kind of treatment or some other, <laughs> yeah, some right. other kind of something. Um, he's, he's, you know, he need, he's, he, he's, he's not getting what he needs in that, in that context. Now, what's this about a crying episode? A crying episode. Says here you had a severe headache and a crying spell. I'm a crying spell. It was brought on by a letter I, I received from a girl I knew once. I think I bl- where I suffered what in you in your profession you call nostalgia. <laughs> it was nostalgia that was brought on by a letter I received. According to the history here, I noticed that you say you saw a vision of your mother. Tell me about that. that. Tell vision, me what it happened. It was a dream. Well, tell me about the dream. Why? I need to know. Why you need to know? This will help in your treatment. So, Laura, you brought up masculinity, and this is something that um, this is actually a lens through which you could see the entire movie, um, because there are these multiple uh, in in a way, I think we're trying to Freddie is trying to figure out how to be a man. That's that's part of his goal. And and in a weird way, Lancaster Dodd is like also trying to figure out how to be a man. They they Who is it, repre- really? well maybe <laughs> maybe Peggy, <laughs> yeah. um. but uh, but but you know the two of them represent these sort of twin ideals of masculinity. So in the one that's like Freddie is like caveman masculinity, right? He's like and and Lancaster is att- attracted to that. He's like he farts and he says lewd things and he acts the scoundrel. Uh, yeah, he's a scoundrel. Yeah, he's the dragon that that um, uh, that uh, Lancaster talks about. Um, oh but, wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, totally. he's the dragon that like gets like tamed or whatever in that story. Mm-hmm. But but also, um, Lancaster is a representation of a certain type of masculinity, namely that kind of like buttoned up, c- in control of every situation. He's never well, 
yeah, he tries at least not to be flustered. Uh, he has this sort of like effortless charisma and charm. And women uh, are like all all these women are sort of like magnetically attracted to him. Like all of his patrons are women and, and particularly like older women. Um, and I think it's interesting. So like he, he has this like element of like, maybe it's the masculinity in the sense of like a patriarchal or father figure that he like makes people feel comfortable and at ease with themselves and their, I don't know, insufficiencies or felt insufficiencies, but they're these like sort of twin poles and, it's it's a bit like yeah I think Freddie like is it wants to maybe be more I don't even know if he wants to be like Lancaster but he like looks to Lancaster for guidance and Lancaster looks to Freddie for like I don't know zest or I don't the kind of like you know the verve is the word I think <laughs> yeah um, I think there are a lot of dimensions to their relationship uh, yeah and and I think you're that's that's absolutely one of them right so like you know one of the justifications that Lancaster gives for keeping Freddie around when he shows up in the boat, you know, aside from the fact that they can't throw him overboard is, is that Freddie has this booze and he's just like an interesting <laughs> yeah. scoundrel. Right. And, and Lancaster finds it fun to be around somebody like that. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think lot I've, I've been in relationships that resemble that in certain respects. Sure. Um, but, but, you know, there's, again, there's, I think there's a lot more to it than that, right? Like one is, one is that I think Lancaster sees him as a potential kind of friend, right? Like they're all, they're almost mm. represented as drinking buddies at the start mm. to some extent where I think Lancaster is surrounded by his followers and his family and his extended family. And there's all these complicated relationships going on there and having this kind of outsider who is like unpredictable and not part of the cult or whatever, at least initially, is sort of attractive to him because it's like somebody that he can, at least, again, at least initially, doesn't yet have control over. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's more fun to hang out with somebody who's not obsequious at, at yeah. least yet, right? Yeah. Um, but also, I think, you know, the yet in that statement is important because it's also really clear that from very early on in their relationship, he, see, he sees him as a potential conquest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Lancaster sees Freddie as a potential conquest, some, somebody who he can try and dominate and figure out how to you, like develop techniques on, right? And so there's this whole sequence in the middle of the film where uh, there's about, it keeps cutting back and forth between, I think, four or five different techniques that Lancaster is developing to kind of break Freddie down and turn him into right, one right, of right. his minions. You know, so there's the whole thing about walking back and forth across the room repeatedly. There's the part where Peggy is reading pornography to him. Right. <laughs> um, there's the part where he, Lancaster's son-in-law is and Freddie are sitting across from each other, just saying mean stuff to each other as much as much as they want, and they're not allowed to react. There's the bit where Peggy is um, getting him to see her eyes as different colors, which mm -hmm. is, I think, a, actually a really powerful moment in the film. It's probably the moment where Freddie comes closest to becoming dominated by the cause, and it's notable mm. that it's Peggy, not. Lancaster but, but anyway like th those all just feel like Lancaster just like making up new tricks to try out and and <laughs> Freddie is his guinea pig right yeah and yeah. and so that's one that's another element of their relationship so there's like the friend thing 
there's the kind of father son thing that you were talking about. There's this kind of scientist in quotes and, <laughs> and, lab rat. and lab rat thing. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's also this kind of creative person and their muse thing, right? So, mm. you know, the, after they hang out the first time and Lancaster drinks his hooch, the next morning, Freddie is told that he's been up all night writing and he, mm. he, and Freddie has inspired creativity in him. And I just think that's an incredibly interesting and complicated relationship between two people. And the fact that the film manages to get that many dimensions of a relationship across to us in such a short amount of time is this incredible creative achievement. That's part of that's part of what I, I think this is an amazingly efficient film when it comes mm. to that and some other things. But can I add one more dimension to their relationship, sure. which is that it he it's almost like uh, Lancaster sees Freddie as uh, a, like a show dog. Like he's mm -hmm. been training him and then he can show him off. It's like it's a way of feeding his ego to show what like the cause can do. We can take this. And I think he even says something like this at one point, but like the idea that like, look, if we can, if we fail him, then like, what good are we? But like, if, but the contra is, but if we succeed, then like, look how much like yeah. it will show the, the true nature of the cause and how good we are. Oh yeah. I mean, if we can turn this like base animal into one of my subjects or whatever, yeah. then well, we a normal person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, into yeah, well, into a normal person, but socialized not really being. a normal person because you're still in a cult, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it, I think it's like a process of socialization, like making sure. him able to sit with the people in high society and not throw shit at them. <laughs> sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I love that scene too because I think there's there's so much going on there. That's the scene in which basically um, Rami Malek, I think his name is Clark, the son-in-law, the mm -hmm. daughter. And Peggy right. are all trying to convince him to kick Friday out of the cult, yeah, out of yeah. the cause. And I almost called it the cult. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, um, and they're all trying different tactics. Um, and, and, and Lancaster's response is like, we have a responsibility, like, you know, we're going to fail him. And, and he does sort of imply like that Friday could be the ultimate example of the success of the cause. But I think that's just the justification he's giving to them because he thinks that's the one that's going to be the most effective to somebody like Peggy, who's mm. a true believer in the cause. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's also for all the other reasons, all the other dimensions we mentioned in this relationship, he needs Freddie, is attracted to Freddie, wants Freddie around, can't let Freddie go, all those things. And so like he's telling Peggy it's about the cause and that's why he wants to keep Freddie around. But it's it's more than that. It's mm. personal. Yeah. But he can't tell Peggy that because <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. she already suspects that about him. She's already worried, I think, about those other dimensions of their relationship. Yeah, but, that's right. So I, I love that scene. It's it's there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the, the thing immediately. So that scene happens after Lancaster Dodd has been released from jail. But before right. Freddie is, because obviously Freddie <laughs> committed some extra crimes on the way. Yeah. To <laughs> um, but, as Freddie does yeah as you do yeah and so you know that and then the scene immediately following that is you know Freddie shows up on the lawn with his clothes half torn off but sort of reassembled and then they collapse hugging each other mm. and you know that is not that's not you know a reluctant sight you know it's like yeah. it's it's really clear that Dodd has genuine affection for him and mm -hmm. is really excited to have him back. And so you can, again, see what, why Peggy would feel threatened by him also, right? Because obviously Peggy, at the, as you say, she's a true believer, but she's also 
you know, has a lot of control over Lancaster Dodd and wants to wants to sort of have power through him as well, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. the, if if that if Freddie is a wedge between them, you can see why she's playing defense. Yeah, I mean, and she she knows that her her position within this is only is is tenuous insofar as Lancaster has had multiple wives before her yeah. and has shown you know, no compunction about moving on past yeah. for the next wife. And um, and then her position within the the organization would be jeopardized. Um, I think it's also that that sequence you mentioned, uh, Dan, is interesting because he this comes after the jail thing where he is uh, Lancaster has said some pretty mean things to Freddie, right? Saying that, yeah. like, nobody likes you. I'm the only one who likes you. Uh, you know, I forget what else he says, but he says he's he, this is the moment when he like is the harshest with him. And so I think in a way that embraces his, his apology, it's this like, sure. Yeah. He's like well, and it, cut, it cuts of. both ways. Right. Because of course, Freddie's also shouting, you're making it all up as you go along when they're mm-hmm. in jail. And mm-hmm. so they both have some pretty substantial stuff to apologize for and to reassure each other about. Yeah. And I think it's notable that it's immediately fall. It's only after that scene that the real hardcore experimentation treating Freddie like yeah, a guinea pig yeah. starts. It's it's at that moment, you know, then that's both a display for Peggy and the others. Um, but it's also, you know, it's like, OK, well, if we're going to make this work, we got to, like, come up with some new tricks uh, mm-hmm. in our bag and we're going to figure out what's the best way to, you know, straighten this dude out. Mm-hmm. Um, um, another way to think of the relationship between the uh, between Lancaster and Freddie, but then also incorporates Peggy is as a representation of both uh, the Freudian divided mind and the platonic divided mind. So in the Freudian uh, situation, you have... Now, this would make each character a representation of a single mind. So, um, But I think it's interesting to think of it this way. So in the Freudian system, you have... Uh, you have the id, ego, and superego. And so here you have uh, who's, the id. Who's obvious. the id, Justin? <laughs> yeah, so the id would be um, Freddie. Uh, and then the superego is uh, Peggy. And then Lancaster is the ego, the one in between who's sort of trying to balance the tw- the twin poles of the the base desire and the kind of um, rationalization uh, component of the superego. Um but I think it's interesting. I was thinking a little bit about um, how this works within the plate, the platonic divided mind, where it's it's then it's a little bit different. Where then it's not. I don't think Lancaster sits in the center, but in the same way. So, in the in the Plato's in the divided soul in Plato, you have the souls divided into logos, themos, and eros. So logos is reason, themos is spirit, and eros is appetite. And here, um, reason is supposed to be the one that sort of interfaces with spirit and appetite. And appetite is very clearly Freddy. Again, appetite for Plato is, is I guess, literally only food, drink, and sex. Like, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's what appetite is. Um, and then, but spirit is things like the concern with ambition and honor and your esteem with other people. So spirit to me seems like it fits well with, Lancaster in the sense that he seems to be driven there's this there's a real ego to the drive of what he's doing and um and his um you know the accolades that he gets as the leader of the cause 
But then that would put Peggy as reason, reason being the one that's mediating between uh, spirit and appetite. And um, and so that's interesting. So then, so depending on how you take the divided soul, you either have Lancaster in the middle balancing the two forces of Peggy and um, and and Freddie, or you have Peggy in the middle balancing sort of the twin urges of Lancaster and and Freddie. And I thought that I wasn't totally sure which one felt more compelling, but I think it was it was kind of interesting to think. You know, anytime you have trios like this, you mm-hmm. can probably fit them into this schema. But I mean, I I mean, it connects up to a question that I had that I was wondering what both of you thought about, which is just exactly what what do you think Peggy's role in this narrative yeah. is? Because on the one hand, I have the f- intuition that she's incredibly important to the whole thing and that it wouldn't work nearly as well without her. On the other hand, whereas Lancaster and Freddie are these like larger than life jumping off the screen at you type characters and there's just so much to say about them it just seems to me that peggy and also the performance of peggy is much more subtle and Mm -hmm. there's just uh it, it just feels like it requires a little bit more teasing out and and i don't feel like i've got a read on her completely yet even after viewing the movie a few times yeah i'm wondering what you two think about did you have thoughts about this one no, I I wish I did have something more like ready to go. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think it's got to be something that gender has to be an important part of it, too. Um, if we're thinking about, um, you know, how to be a, a you guys, we said, like, how everybody's figuring out how to be a man, except for Peggy, who is a woman. Um, but she she wields power. She has to wield power through men yeah. in a different way. Mm-hmm. She has to wield power in a quiet way. She's not going to be the author of the split saber, you know, but she's <laughs> Love that but title. She, you know, she might not be the director of a film, but she'll be the editor. You mm. know, she'll be <laughs> she'll be the person making it happen in in the background. Um, yeah, I Amy Adams is incredible in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I mean, this in some ways fits with your reading of her as Logos, Justin, mm-hmm. just because you know she's she's steering these two creatures from behind the scenes, and yeah. um, she's you know she's she's barely in control but she clearly is at at least many times and she it by the end of it it really seems like she's this she's the one silently off sitting to the side but uh Lancaster sort of has to like ask her permission about what to (laughs) what to do and it seems like she's one and not only that but his daughter from a previous marriage has been banished to the reprogramming ship or whatever it is (laughs) which is based on a real Scientology thing and um and it just feels like she's won some kind of power struggle by the end, even though Lancaster doesn't even really know that that's happened. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. So Peggy is one of the elements of this movie that has that is a has a direct parallel in the life of L. Ron Hubbard. Hmm. So his third wife, who was a Texan uh, named Mary Sue Whip. Um, Hell yeah. Whip. And um, <laughs> she she was. You know, his previous marriages had been, uh, well, for one thing, simultaneous, but also incredibly messy, Um, (laughs) (laughs) incredibly messy. So I I, I read uh, I read the 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 book about the history of Scientology or part of the book about the history of Scientology by Lawrence Wright called Going Clear uh, in preparation for this. And um, because I was curious. Oh my God. And yes, Dan. Thank nice. you. It, it's, it's a really, I mean, it's really interesting. It's like, uh, um, he, L. Ron Hubbard makes Jordan Peterson seem like, uh, a very 
kind of chill dude <laughs> with, with really with really boring and sensible ideas is what I would say. Um, and and you know in some ways after having read it, it's actually remarkable the degree to which, insofar as this is a kind of Romana clef for the early kind of pre-Scientology Dianetics thing, which I think ha- it, it really is. And and I think in interviews, the cast and Pete, Paul Thomas Anderson really downplay that, but it's yeah. it's way more of a thing than they admit. I mean, right down to things like L. Ron Hubbard really liked smoking cools, you know, like he like all <laughs> kinds of little details. I'll, 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 some of the questions that he asked Freddie during the informal processing are like lifted straight off of like the entrance exam that you take if you if you wander into a Scientology wow. uh, center. But anyway, one of the details is uh, is that L. Ron Hubbard had these two incredibly drama filled previous marriages and he was a complete monster and and partly because he was by very much the dominant personality in the marriages and then it seems like his third marriage which really lasted until his death i think from 1952 to the mid 80s um to mary sue she was much more in control of the situation she definitely had a like like peggy had a kind of a very lenient policy about infidelity but was definitely also the one who took care of lots of aspects of his business and kind of pulled a lot of strings from behind the scenes. And, you know, so, so again, I think that supports this reading that Mm. part of what's going on in the movie, the the person who kind of wins at the end in a certain Mm. way is, is Peggy. Um, Yeah. I mean, there is this scene of course, where she uh, exerts her control over him explicitly in the bathroom. And, um, I wasn't totally sure what to make of that scene. Of course, there's like the sex component of it where she knows that she can sort of use sex in this way. But like most of the movie, she's, I don't know, she's like incredibly uh, buttoned up and proper and almost cold. And so she doesn't, you know, it's that's like the, and even in that scene, there's nothing like sexy about that scene. She just like comes in and like, you know, master jacks him off, right? So, like, it, it depends what you're into, Justin. I mean, well, <laughs> but it's like it's a, it's 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 like almost like the puritanical version of sex, right? Like everything is just yeah. like she might as well always have the button buttoned all the way to the top. I think she um, like she is in a pretty buttoned up nighty, and then she and then afterwards she's like, Nuh, and then like wipes her hand wipes on her the towel. But like, <laughs> but, but I think what's remarkable about that is that she clearly knows what works on him, right? Like it's it, yeah. like there are probably lots of people in the world for whom that approach would not be effective but she's got him <laughs> she's got him like Hagged. repeating everything she says like a mantra yeah. right yeah no more hooch you know like he, yeah. he's <laughs> he's he's listening to what she's saying while she's yeah. doing that and so i i mean i think that's an inc- again a really telling detail is that this just in the same way as with the sailors watching freddie get with the mermaid at the start and um is that his reaction to her buttoned up forceful print like kind of not very sexy way of doing it is is that is that he's incredibly receptive to it yeah and yeah and so this is somebody who clearly knows this guy you know mm. to a to a degree that like a casual observer uh could not possibly hope to attempt That's and really she she clearly has way more insight into him than freddie does yeah and we only catch little tiny glimpses of it but Yep. I mean, I think one other thing about her is that there are many ways in which she comes across as a more fervent and adept pr- 
practitioner of the cause than Lancaster mm -hmm. Dodd yeah. does, right? So yep. again, go back to those scenes where they're using Freddie as a guinea pig and they're trying out their techniques on him. By far the most impressive of those is that, again, that scene where she is trying to get Freddie to see her eyes change color. Like she's mm -hmm. basically trying to brainwash him into, you know, having changing his perceptual representations, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it works, right? Like her mm -hmm. eyes do change color in the, in when we're looking at her from Freddie's perspective. And I, I mean, that surely is the moment in the film that most clearly demonstrates that Freddie really is at least somewhat receptive to this, uh, to this system because there are many ups and downs other than that. Um, you know, he's beating people up and throwing stuff and getting in fights with Dodd. But that, that moment strikes me as the, as the sort of high point of his relationship mm -hmm. to the cause. And so, and, and then again, later at the end of the movie, it's really clear that she is like the consigliere or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. running the show from behind the scenes. And I, I so, so just this connects up to your Plato thing, I think, Justin, in, in the following way. And it connects up to what the cause itself espouses, right? So Lancaster Dodd's own view is that we've got to escape our negative emotions. We've got to escape our animalistic component of our psyche. And, you know, if you translate that into Plato, it means you've got to get rid of your appetitive parts of your being and guess which which of the three of them winds up ejected from the cause by the end yeah. of the movie right yeah. and and it's because of peggy right so she's mm. she's managed to sort of so firmly get that aspect of the movement under control that freddie the kind of walking symbol of it has been tossed aside man is not an animal we are not a part of the animal kingdom. We sit far above that crowd, perched as spirits, not beasts. You are not ruled by your emotions. Building on what you're saying, Dan, about how she understands him, that I had never thought about that component of it, but I, I that unlocked a few things for me. So I just want to build on that a little bit. So um, her, you might think that her power over Lancaster and that, you know, this, the, the title of the movie is the master and we wonder who's master and who is sort of slave, so to speak. And so her power and that is mastery over Lancaster may be manifest in her knowledge of him. And I think that that kind of dovetails with what the, even the name of the movement, the cause the cause, it seems, and what they do in processing is that they're trying to uncover causes. They're trying to uncover, like, why is it that you feel unwell in normal society? Why is it that you get angry at a drop of a hat? Why is it that you're constantly boozing and all that sort of thing? And you're trying to find causes for things. You're trying to basically understand yourself. It's a kind of, despite his, you know, protestation to the contrary, a kind of psychoanalysis. And she, being the as you put it, like in a way, like the the best practitioner of the cause understands Lancaster better than anyone, maybe even better than Lancaster himself. Mm -hmm. And that's how she's able to exert power over him. It, and so in a way, and that actually dovetails with what the cause represents, which is Scientology. Well, I mean, well, whatever, loosely represents Scientology, because part of what 
Scientologists do. I mean, this is all like get come through whispers and things, but they do these sessions, these auditing sessions that are all recorded, thus gaining quite a bit of information on their members, which are then effectively used as blackmail, right? They're used as power over the members. So it's mm -hmm. this idea of getting knowledge of someone then allows you to have power or mastery over them. And that's what she, anyway, so that was all coming out of, I think what you were saying about Peggy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about the, think about the conversation that Freddie has with Lancaster at the end where, you know, he's giving him the kind of ultimatum, uh, you know, you can, if you're in, you're in for a billion years or whatever it is. And yeah. if you leave, then I never want to see you again, approximately. But then another thing that he says, and I forget the exact wording is that, um, is that, you know, everybody needs a master. If you, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you find out a way to live without a master, you know, let me know. Then, yeah, let, let me know. know You'll right? be the only person. That's right. But, the, but of course, like, you know, that it's like Dodd, I think is presupposing, well, and I'm the one at the top, you know, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the unmoved mover or whatever, mm. but of course he's not right. Like he, no. he's mm -hmm. not a counterexample to this claim. Peggy is his master, I think yeah, yeah. at this stage in the process. Yeah. And, uh, and so he, I mean, he really says it not in so many words, but it's, it's like a logical entailment of a thing that he yeah. says that, that, yeah. um, that he's not his own master, right? Go to that landless latitude and good luck. For if you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, and let the rest of us know, will you? For you be the first person in the history of the world. I actually think that he, in some sense, knows that. I, I think he sure. knows, in some sense, that he is subjugated to Peggy and that she has some sort of mastery over him. And and I think when he says that, I think that is his admission or whatever of that of that point, in some sense. Because sure. exactly because you pointed out, it's a logical entailment of his claim. That's unless right. the unless the domain is restricted appropriately, but oh well, you know, it might, it might <laughs> always got, have to be. We got to Yeah, exactly. We got to do a little philosophy of language. Talk. That's yeah. fine. Just a little bit. That's fine. <laughs> I was thinking about Peggy and and um, how well she knows Lancaster, and maybe that she's just actually in, she's incredibly astute and in, about a lot of people. And it's an, it's interesting to try, trace like how she responds to Freddie throughout the movie. Um, she's pretty welcoming him to, in the beginning when he is amused, and then she pretty quickly discerns yep. that he's he's too you know erratic and uncontrollable that he's he's not good for the cause he's not good you know he's not um good pr uh, and 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 more than that that he it has too much control over over lancaster for her taste i think mm, but yeah. it's interesting to see how she kind of handles that because she lets him have freddie after that scene right after that scene i think she goes downstairs and goes to freddie right after the scene that was sorry in the bathroom where she says no more hooch to Lancaster. She goes down to Freddie and then she's like, now I'm giving Freddie his talk and says no more, no more drinking. But she also says, I want you to put plant something in the future. Right. Um, and it's there for you waiting when you're ready. And I would, I wondered like, if she was planting that seed of Doris, like if she's like, cause that's what, when he leaves the cause, it's be, right, it's yeah. go to back to Doris. Yeah. He, he like literally gets on the bike and doesn't turn back around again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in some ways that's a direct response to what Lancaster literally told him to do. But, um, but I think also it's maybe because Peggy was 
was planting that seed. Mm. She was finding ways to push him away gently and not gently, but she had like several tactics. Yeah. And maybe she's, she sort of, it was very, very astute in the way that she understood Freddie and Lancaster in I mean, doing so. She, she knows how to work from behind the scenes like yeah. better than anyone. Um, but can I, one other thing about the master slave relationship, which it, yeah, so it just, no, I just, I just, just reminded me of this, that, that what you're saying and, and also just what we've been talking about here, but, um, uh, in a way, Lancaster, you know, he fancies himself the master of all these people, all his subjects within the cause, but he is, I think maybe not understanding or does understand to a certain extent that he is beholden to them like the cult and his status within the cult is only as sort of secure as the the members in the cult like he if if everyone just left the cult he would be nothing right he mm -hmm. would have no power whatsoever and, and there are a couple of moments where it's teetering like you know yes. th th there are moments there's we get to witness several moments where people are like ah, eh, not so sure about this anymore. <laughs> yeah right? no and exactly yeah and those are the moments at which he really loses his cool because he yes. knows he knows that he's like What's one stake? false move, one thing that's going to like turn people off is going to is going to be the end of it. And I think that what's this is coming back to something that I mentioned earlier, but all the benefactors of the of the cult uh, seem to be older women. Um, it, it's a, the first lady is uh, Mildred Drummond, and then this that's the lady who. Um, Whose whose ship they they're going yeah. um, in New uh, York, to, yeah. to to New York too, and then the other one is Helen, who's Laura Dern, um, who they end up at her house after, you know, and then she eventually gets arrested because Mildred is suing him. Um, uh, but but I think it's you know it's this tenuous relationship of like in a way like no one is the master of anyone because you're you're all beholden to someone for something. Like insofar as yes, he's giving them this well warm blanket of the understanding of their past lives they're giving him money you know which mm -hmm. he needs he needs the 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 money to at least you know not only to eat but also to maintain this air of respectability in high society so that he can keep this right keep attracting the right clientele um and be taken seriously and i mean it's the same thing with scientology with having it gotten its tendrils into hollywood and you know, getting that kind of boost of respectability from high profile Scientologists like Tom Cruise or mm -hmm. uh, yeah. who else? Like John Travolta. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that the an important detail of this movie is that it's not based on like latter day Scientology. So Scientology gets really weird, like in the 70s and stuff. But uh -huh. then the the period that it's kind of loosely based on is this post-war late 40s early 50s period when okay. it wasn't called Scientology yet it was called Dianetics and, mm -hmm. it, and originally Dianetics was this like self-help book that was a bestseller right mm -hmm. so it, it, here's an in interesting detail about L. Ron Hubbard he holds the Guinness world record for the most books published by a single author it's over a thousand because uh, he was what? you know he was like <laughs> I mean we don't know exactly how many of these were written by you know his like enslaved ghost writers, but, uh, <laughs> but he really was like an incredibly prolific writer mm -hmm. earlier in his life. He wrote like pulp science fiction for mm -hmm. magazines that, and lots of novels as well. And he was, a, he was a very successful writer. He was friends mm -hmm. with a lot of, um, he was close friends with, you know, Heinlein and a lot of other major science, mm -hmm. 20th century science fiction writers. And, and so at this stage in, in his, in, in, in science, in the sort of pre Scientology era, the Dianetics was this incredibly huge hit 
And then they very quickly set up all of these kinds of these like centers to try and take advantage of it. But it turned out to be a bit of a flash in the pan. It mm. it sort of lost its its followers like a couple of like a, the next year, basically. Right. So he, mm. he had this huge hit and then he like lost most of his money, lost most of the following that he had because it there was some other self-help book that came out after that. Right. But there was this huge. So there was this vacuum. And then I think after the first book, the second book was where he started really strategizing about how to shore up the support and turn it into a permanent gig, right? Because part mm -hmm. of the problem with the first one was that it just, he had no strategy for turning it into like a long-term hmm. money-making operation. You sell a book, anybody can claim to be doing Dianetics on anybody. And it's only once you introduce these aspects of a religious movement that you get people not just giving you money once, but you mm. get them paying dues or tithing or whatever it is over their rest of it for the next billion years. Right. And, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I, that's the, that's the historical moment in the sort of prehistory of Scientology that this movie is kind of giving us some kind of Ramana cleft to. And so the, the moment between the first book and the second book is where he's really strategizing. And so one place that I think we see that in the, in the movie is that uh, the the follower played by Laura Dern comes up to him after his book launch for the Split Saber and starts pointing out that there are some inconsistencies between the second book and the first book, right? So you're not supposed to remember the past lives anymore. You're supposed to imagine them. Yeah. And it's sort of implied that this is because you know, it's like a it's like a it it makes it more palatable to newcomers, right? Um, you know, and people initially will probably be a little bit skeptical about all this past life talk. But mm. if you just present it initially as like imagining, then it might not scare as many potential mm. followers away. And then like you can like in a later stage, introduce them to the past life stuff. And so she's she's like, I think, simultaneously weirded out by the idea that he's like making modifications to it. But also, I think she's weirded out by the idea that this is his justification for that is like that it's a kind of a commercial enterprise <laughs> that he's trying to build. Right. And that, again, is one of the moments where he really cracks and gets angry mm. because somebody's seeing through his scheme. But I think that's that's so that that part of the history of Scientology, I found useful for interpreting part of what's going on in the, in the mm -hmm. film, if that makes sense. So, so in a way, we're seeing a transition period yeah. for Scientology between the kind of earlier, like, this is just kind of a fun self-help thing to like full-fledged cult slash religion. Yeah, like I want yeah. these people giving me money for the rest of their lives yeah. version and not yeah. and, and nobody else can do it in the same way that I do because I'm the enlightened kind of, I'm the clear, right, you know? Yeah, I'm, right. Yeah, I wonder how much Peggy's in, like affluence of influence, influence of yeah, that too. Yeah, right, right. Well, right. in fact, the, Mary Sue did. Mary Sue know, was a big was part of that. Oh, that's interesting. Can I just yes. make a little tidbit about while we're talking about Scientology, and then we can like move on from it? But um, <laughs> I don't think we can move on from Scientology. I think the whole point is you, you never you never move on. It's a billion um, years or bust. Yeah, so um, I love that line. Um, but um, apparently, I think Dan, you had mentioned earlier that in interviews and press stuff, right after the movie was released they were kind of dodgy about like saying that right that it's based on oh, yeah. 
Scientology or earlier versions, the Dianetics era or L. Ron Hubbard. And I had read a couple things that sort of implied that that was like Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein's company doing because they didn't want to make piss off oh, yeah. prominent Scientologists in the Hollywood yeah. era. You know, he works with Tom Cruise or John Travolta or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and Harvey Weinstein wanted to like keep those relationships. So it's it was like, I think like, oh, I yeah. think. Tall Thomas Anderson's happy to be full well, light upfront about the fact that it's based on L. Ron Hubbard. But, but Anderson is is friends with Tom Cruise and had yeah. Used that was him my other Magnolia. thing is that he showed him he Tom Cruise apparently got an early viewing of the movie. Um, oh, I see. and had some issues with it apparently. Like oh. it was like an agree to disagree situation. Wow. But I think they're friends. They're but still like friends? yeah, but he, apparently Paul Thomas Anderson did give him a little special screening. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think I, yeah, I, I heard. I think I saw an interview in which he said that, but. I mean, and said that he liked it or something, right? But 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 I mean, I think it, it's really clear once you actually read the Lawrence Wright book, which came out after the movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think anyone had quite the access to this mm-hmm. information about the history of Scientology in advance of this. But the the parallels are just like mm-hmm. very striking in many yeah. ways. Not not even just so. I saw an interview with Philip Seymour Hoffman where. He just straight up denies that he was trying to act like L. Ron Hubbard. And he says, no, I had other people in mind that I was acting like. He, that's yeah. If you've seen footage of L. Ron Hubbard, of course I'm not. But, it, but you know, the, what you read about Hubbard is that he he just had all these mannerisms that were just clearly being picked up by, by <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, hmm. all this stuff about how he would get really animated when he was in front of a crowd, if he was drinking and he would like get really carried away and he would to the point where Mary Sue would get kind of embarrassed of, or his, both of his, all three of his wives would get kind of embarrassed of him and worried that he was like <laughs> doing something shameful. And, you know, you see that a couple of times in here, the speeches are a little bit over the top and the, the singing <laughs> where, where Freddie is picturing everyone naked. And, you know, it's just, it's just, silly right like it's it's not you know like he obviously has these people wrapped around his fingers sufficiently that they're not seeing it as such but it is and so anyway the 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 point is i i i think there's no doubt that in the kind of pr push after the movie came out they were very clearly downplaying this not just so as not to offend their friends but also because scientology is like an incredibly litigious organization that might have (laughs) straight up taking them to court highly yeah. successfully litigious as well and so i i just think in hollywood in general um but uh, even otherwise you got to be really careful about what you say about scientologists in public speaking of which you know who's going to listen to this podcast Jessica? yeah no. <laughs> you, you have a, you have a hollywood career uh, <laughs> looking forward to dan i'm screwed you don't want to talk trash about scientology in the philosophy business <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> That yeah, I feel like we should we should tag Scientology in this episode. We should yeah, be like right. at Scientology. No, come no, and join no. us. All I'm gonna say is I, I recommend reading at least the early parts of the Lawrence Wright book for yourself because it is like truly bizarre stuff. Should we? <laughs> I mean, one of the things I, I I I just to let's so let's not that Scientology. Let's move on. Let, yeah. No, let's move on, but not that far. Okay. Okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about cults. Okay. <laughs> um, let's go from species to genus here. Completely <laughs> different topic from Scientology, obviously. Uh-huh. Okay. So Scientology is a religion. We're talking. About, we're now moving to cults. Of course. Okay. Of course. Um. So <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the things I was trying to you know this movie offers us the opportunity to reflect on is is the allure of the cult and in particular the cult leader and Philip Seymour Hoffman is uh, plays this 
incredibly. And and this may be his, his my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. It, it may be his best performance. I mean, it's absolutely uh, incredible. And one of the things that I think is so uh, beguiling about it is that he has this way of like twisting people's words against them. So, and and this comes out really clearly in that, um, in that exchange with the, uh, with the skeptic guy. Um, and I just found that so, uh, so compelling. So, so the skeptic guy is like saying like, well, well, what is, what's the proof of any of this? You claim like there are these past lives going back trillions of years it can cure leukemia. And he says, well, you have some forms of leukemia. <laughs> yeah. I love how he just, he's always like sneaking around. And, and the other thing is, he's like, well, what about skepticism? And he's like, well, yes, of course, without skepticism, there'd be no negative and we'd just be positive and then there wouldn't be any charge, right? He, he always these yeah. ways of like making it seem like he's fully on board with all of this. And and he does this move twice, which I, which I find just, it's just such a slippery um a piece of rhetoric. Good science, by definition, allows for more than one opinion. Which is why our gathering of data is so far-reaching. Otherwise, you merely have the will of one man, which is the basis of cult. Is it not? Tis, tis. And thankfully, we are, all of us, working at breakneck speeds and in unison towards capturing the mind's fatal flaws and correcting it back to its inherent state of perfect. Whilst writing civilization and eliminating war and poverty, and therefore the atomic threat. <laughs> well, <laughs> I find it quite difficult to comprehend, or more to the point, believe that you believe, sir, that time travel hypnosis therapy can bring world peace and cure cancer. I have never been to the pyramids, have you? No. And yet we know that they are there. Because learned men have told us so. He's using this sort of like this trickery of like, if you're, you know, effectively what he's doing is like raising the stakes. Yeah, uh, meditation one. It's, yeah, uh... exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I find it so, it's delivered in such a, it's like silver tongued, right? Like he has this way of, of making it, he's so confident in the delivery that um, everyone around him, you can see like, if, of course he's going to go on to break and like lose his cool in front of this guy and say, probably our favorite line of the entire movie. <laughs> But, um, no, my favorite line has changed, by the way. Okay, well, we'll get to that. Um, but, but you know, he, but, but, but in that moment, you can sort of see everyone in the room, like, yeah, you know, that makes sense what he's saying there. Even as the and he, you know, even as the guy is like continuing to push him, um, and uh, and I, I think there is something attractive to people. I, I find it in myself to some degree about having someone who's incredibly confident just sit there and and tell you everything is going to be fine. And effectively. Oh, yeah. And I, I, you know, this is the connection that we, we can make as well with demagogues and in particular, the one who's, uh, who, who's now out of office. I could say that because this is going to go up in February 12th. That was a, that was a um, really good indexical. You just, yeah. just, just <laughs> Elliot Michelson should write a paper about that. <laughs> Uh, I had to, but notice I had to, I had to, ex, I had to explain it because it, uh -huh. it doesn't work, it, you yeah. know, otherwise, right? I, so the Elliot should also write on that point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, um, I'm gonna edit all that out. Uh, yeah. Leave that's it in, call. you nerds. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and so you know, I do think that there's there's this that 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 feature of 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 Dodd, and, and it's illustrated so so compellingly uh, by by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and that's the thing that Peggy does not have. So yeah. for all Peggy's power She's over a him, Sheila. 
That's yes, why. that's right. So for all her power over him, she could never do the thing that he does in those moments where he's being yeah. challenged and where he's giving those speeches. He always starts his speeches in weird ways. He says, yeah. like, he gets up and he's like, I want to, I'm in love. And you're like, what? Like, what? How mm-hmm. is that a way to start a speech? And then he <laughs> then he somehow brings it around. And, and then oh, the it's amazing. He, does, he says, like, everything in life, it's all about laughter. And you're like, what? How is that? You know, that's, just, an, that's another thing that's. I shit you not straight up lifted from really? Dianetics. Yeah. Oh my God. I guess I'm not surprised, right? It's such a, it's one of these things that's like, it's too perfect to be, to just be made up. Like it's yeah. such a, it's such a, it's like, you know, I like nobody thinks like that. You have yeah. to be like slightly insane. I think to just walk up on stage and just be like, it's all about laughter. You have yeah. to have some amount of insanity to just think like, yeah, I can bring it yeah. all around to this. I have unlocked and discovered a secret to living in these bodies that we hold. And oh yes, it's very, 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 very serious. (laughs) The secret is laughter. I mean, the thing that he's really good at with these opening lines is that the opening line makes you think, oh, shit, is this guy crazy? Like, yeah, <laughs> he's so, he's that what he's he's he starts out and you're like, oh, no. And is, then yeah. but then he's just recovers so well that it's better yeah. than if he had just been on it from the from the beginning. Right. Because oh, yeah. it, it just makes you feel like an idiot for having doubted him for a yeah. moment there. Right. And it's and I think that that is an incredible rhetorical strategy where. You know, you can imagine philosophers doing this, right? Where they where they start with their most bizarre conclusion. They 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 roll in and they say, "I'm going to show you that every particle of matter is conscious." And then and then the, and everyone's like, Pfft. and then they like spend the next hour constructing some intricate argument, and you can't figure out what the problem is with it. And and that's what makes them so you know, spellbinding is yeah. that they recover from that initial feeling. And then the next time they say something that sounds nuts, you think, well, I doubted him last time. And look what it got me. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I, and I think that's, you know, I think that's an, a very powerful, um, strategy. In, when, in for being a cult leader. Totally. Yeah. yeah. For the, yeah. For the formula of being a cult leader. Or a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> or a philosopher. Oh, that's what, that's what you meant. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but there is, uh, but as you put it, there is this element of like, almost like, I mean, we were getting at this, I guess, insanity, but also this element of like, only, uh, generalize here, but like only a certain type of guy can do this, right? Sure. You have to yeah. be A, a guy, and you have to be B, like have the un- utmost confidence in yourself that you can yeah. pull the audience back from the brink. And oh. um, it, and I think that's what attracts people to it is this, that's just that pure confidence that like alpha yeah. male, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to show you how we can get to this absurd consequence. Um, or, I mean, I think the division of labor in politics between people who are like that and then the kind of like ideas, people behind the scenes who are right. like figuring like out the, the analytics. Clinton's. Yeah, sure. The, yeah. the ones who don't. Yeah, I, the ones who should never be. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should, should never be on stage. No. Um, but um, 
But you know, I mean, I'm just thinking of people. I would the I, the paradigmatic example of somebody who should all, who sh, who's got to be behind the scenes is like, well, there are lots of Republicans, right? There's like Carl Rove, or there's like yeah, Dick yeah, Cheney, yeah. right? Like Dick Cheney was never going to be yeah. president, right? But he somehow struck up this deal with uh, George W. Bush to yeah. basically let him be the kind of ghostwriter of his presidency. And yeah. Bush was one of these people who, at least at times, was able to just be so charismatic with the right audience that yep. he could just get mm-hmm. people to sign up. Um, you know, and again, yeah, and maybe Hillary and Bill are another good example of this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And and I and I think this is a very common sort of division of labor in any kind of public facing enterprise where you need the pitch person, but you also need the person who like writes the pitch and keeps the books and makes yep. sure that the analytics are all in order. And uh, and you know that's what we've got. I think with yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's that's what happens in cults too. Because my sure. friend has a theory that is that what you were pointing yeah, at me for? Uh, my our friend uh, Molly, who's been a guest a couple times, has mm-hmm. a theory that everybody divides up into either everybody's either a cult leader, a cult follower, or a Sheila in the Rajneeshi. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> um, what what was the name? Wild of the document? Wild Country. Wild, well, that? yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I'm a hundred percent a cult follower (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but peggy's definitely a sheila she's definitely i mean the other person that's a sheila in this is is the i don't actually remember his character's name but it's the guy who says he like edited all of his books or his first book at least he's the he's um he's like the tall guy from there will be blood there will be blood the right. brother. The, you the, think of him as Sheila? Yeah, because he's the he's one of the guys who's like behind the scenes facilitating, but mm. he could never be. No, like, that, that guy guy's can't. got no charisma. No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, but he's helping to like, he's furthering the cause. Wait, um, is he the one that Freddie encounters in the basement of the second event? Or Yes. Right. And then and he sort and of also indicates that he doesn't really <laughs> believe yeah. any of this stuff, that, yeah. he's, <laughs> that he's just the bullshit massager. Yeah. And yeah, and then Freddie beats the, beats the shit out of him. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's no it's notable that the things that fr- that prompt Freddie into uh civilian life violence there are three episodes of Freddie getting in fights with people in the movie each one of them follows somebody's expression of doubt, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the first one is the dude questioning him at the townhouse in New York um questioning Dodd at the townhouse in New York and then Freddie throws the apple but later goes and beats the guy up. The second one is that Dodd's son Val says uh, he just makes it all up as he goes along and Freddie doesn't attack him but he attacks the police who show up like very soon after that Mm -hmm. Um, and then lashes out at Dodd too and then himself right he rips his clothes off and hits his head on the on the prison mattress and stuff and then the um the third is is this this, guy, is this yeah. case that we were talking about in the basement yeah. of the book launch and he and so i mean you know it's clear that for freddie he really wants to be to believe but i i think this is this this goes along with my some of my, the claims i made earlier about the fact that freddie is not just an apparent counterexample to dodd's theories about how to control and dominate mm-hmm. other humans. He is a counterexample, right? In the end, the stuff does not work on him. Um, we are animals, right? Like Freddie is, <laughs> Freddy is a walking, talking proof that humans are animals who are wearing clothes, you know, and who have like, you know, warships and machetes and <laughs> alcohol and <laughs> cameras at their disposal. Yeah. And, 
Um, but we're still animals like his hunchback is still protruding from his uniform, you know? Yeah. And, and I, and I think it's, it's, it's those moments of where it's just like in the end, they can't bring him into the fold. He's, he's, uh, he's unmasterable in some way. And I, I think that's to, to me, that's the overarching, like, that's one, that's the central thread of the movie is that like any system you develop to try and control other humans is ultimately going to break down because mm. at some level we're just like these chaotic monkeys uh, or apes. <laughs> I like that. Uh, can Here's a, here's a slightly different read, but I think in the same vein as to what the ending of the movie, so we just skip ahead to the ending. So um, mm-hmm. in that scene where he picks up the, the, the woman at the, yeah. um, win manchester which is an insane <laughs> british name uh, uh, and they're like having sex and he parrots basically all yeah. these lines from lancaster at her he basically just tries from, to go through the, from the processing, the processing session the informal yeah. processing session so what i wondered is um whether to your point dan that yes he is an animal we are all animals that's 100 percent but on the other hand, he has a bunch, he has like a script now to like, so he can now interact with another human being in a more civil way. Of course, he's just parroting. Like he's, he doesn't really, you know, uh, he's not really anything much more than animal, but he, he can outwardly like contain himself and they actually share a kind of intimate moment, right? They laugh together. And that's mm-hmm. one of the, I think one of the first times I think we see Freddie actually seem to express a kind of joy at life mm-hmm. um and i do wonder if maybe we're we're supposed to think that he has reached a kind of um point of i don't know that he has changed or i guess over the course of this now he hasn't changed in some profound way he's just changed in the way that he's able to like act more like a person but he's not really much more of a human than an animal um, but then I wonder if then you, you could take the reading of the movie as like, yeah, we're all like that. We're all just like animals, but we're, we have the, we're equipped with the kind of ability to parrot a kind of socialization, which yeah. allows us to get along with one another and, and so on. But, um, but we haven't really transcended a- a- animality in the way that, uh, Lancaster Dodd would, would want. Yeah. We can to. pretend sometimes like yeah. we can get dressed up and stuff, but, uh, <laughs> but I, th- I have a different read of the, the final scene though, mm. than, than you. Um, and it's, it fits with, it, it goes with what I said before. So I, I think there are all these moments in the movie where the, the sort of ideas of the cause, the sort of loftiest ideas of the cause are being presented by somebody. And Freddie is like the embodiment of, he's, he's just, he, again, he's a walking counter example, right? So I can think of like four of these. One is the moment at which the processing is going on and Dodd is asking him the questions and he just farts, right? And it's, mm-hmm. and it's just like, it's just like, uh, I forget exactly what question Dodd is asking him at that moment, but it's, are you unpredictable? Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So that, so that's one, there's another one that, uh, that I was going to save for my favorite line, but it's, it's the moment at which Freddie wanders downstairs soon after he gets out on the ship and he puts on the headphones and there are a bunch of people writing down Dodd's like they're transcribing whatever he muttered into his, whatever he said into his uh recorder the night before for his second book and what what he's 
what what Dodd is saying on the tape is, you know, we are we are not part of the animal kingdom. We we sit far above that crowd, perched as spirits, not beasts. You are not ruled by your emotions. It is not only possible, it is easily achievable that we all do that we do away with all negative emotions and bring man back to his inherent state of perfect. Man is not an animal. We sit far above that crowd. And right at the end of that, Freddie's <laughs> listening to it and he takes a, a notebook and he writes, do you want to fuck on it? And, <laughs> and shows it to the woman sitting next to him who just kind of like, you know, makes a polite smile back to him. Yeah. And it, and it's and it's like he's listening to this person like pronounce about the like lofty place of human beings above the animal kingdom. And then the thing that he does while he's listening to that is the most kind of like animalistic Mm. thing that you could possibly imagine. And, um, right. He has a smiley face though. So that's social. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. He throws on the emoticon. He was the yes, yes, no box. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that's another one. And then, you know, what, I, I, I had another one in mind too, but I've forgotten it now. But the, right at the end of the movie, I mean, I take it that's part of what's going on there. He's Here's what he's taken away from the cause, right? He's got these like lines, right? Yeah. Like, he, And he's turned them into a joke <laughs> that he tells while having sex with a woman that he's just yeah. met, right? Like, and, <laughs> like, like it's not it, like he's completely doesn't have any of the content of it. He doesn't no, believe any yeah. of it. It's a party trick for him at that point. Yeah. Um, and it's a silly one right it's not like he's actually trying to convince her of anything he's not being serious um it and for him that's the space in his head that it occupies and and so once again i mean i see that scene as like completely trivializing the stuff that dodd Mm. is saying you know in all of his speeches and his books and Mm. stuff so you just see it as like a, a like a bookend pairing to like the joke he tells in the beginning about like how you get rid of crabs yeah. Like that's like what he does. That's his party trick for the Navy guys. And then when yeah. he's like with a lady, he's like, let me break out my Dianetics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One another, th- another thought on this though, is that like, in a way, w- what we would want. So we, as people who don't believe in the cause, I'm going to just presuppose that none of the three of us here believe in the cause. <laughs> and the I actual content not of the cause. a member of a fictional cult. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I was a knight in a previous know, life. Okay. Um, <laughs> But but you might desire for someone like Freddie to come away from the cause with exactly what he came away from with, with. Namely, like he's a little bit more social than he was. He's got some tools that he can use to interact better with people in the real world. But he didn't in, in, imbibe any of the actual content because, you know, that would have turned him into this brainwashed zombie kind of man. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, he, he kind of it comes away from the cause with what he needed from it, namely just some tricks for how to interact with people in a normal way. And none of the the stuff that could have really messed up his life, namely, you know, getting, I don't know, ha- being basically the subject to this guy's whims on a, on a daily basis. What's your reason for thinking that he's more civilized at the end than he is at the start? The, the reason is just that he he inter the way he interacts with with Win it, it feels like it's a genuine um, they share a genuine laugh and they have a kind of um, uh, you know it's, it's it's the first moment that he shares with a with with someone other than Lancaster that seems to be like a moment of actual tenderness. Um, well, not that no. he's going to marry this woman, but but that it does seem like they're. I feel like he, Anderson's playing with us because. Mm-hmm. 
there's two there's two endings, right? So he they have this moment, and it does seem ten. I mean, the way he's lighting it is very gentle, and and um, but then he says, "Put it back in." It fell out. Yeah, they left. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but like it, that's pretty. You know, it's like he's pretty. That's it's pretty crass. Bait. It's pretty crass. It's crass. But then we see him. Don't we see him then lie back down next to the woman, uh-huh. yes, the sand woman, true. one the more sand time. Woman is And it's true. not yeah, like, and true. that feels really tender. It's like yeah. he's like looking for companionship, uh-huh. but it's not really clear. But he's back to the start. Yeah, he's yeah, back to the true. start. And, yeah. I, and I think you're you're wrong, Justin, that he doesn't have any other moments of tenderness with anybody mm-hmm. other than Dodd, because there's that you know romantic um, uh, sort of uh, moment in the dark room with the sales girl at the department store he works at. And of course, he eventually mm-hmm. messes it up by passing out drunk at the restaurant that they go out to while she eats. But um, but in the dark room, I mean, they're having fun like she likes him. You know, he's mm-hmm. clearly successfully uh, gotten her attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're having some kind of intimacy, um, admittedly fueled by a drink made out of, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the liquid is that you develop photos in yeah photo um, developing fluid <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but, I, I, but but so yeah. i so to so i guess what i think is that at least one possible way to interpret what's going on at the end is that he's basically just right back there you know he's yeah. he's uh, i don't see any like particularly strong evidence that he's yeah. made progress as a kind of individual it's more sexual the relationship he seems to have with that woman and the other the one with the woman at the end win you mean you mean more... when they're having sex? Yeah, yeah, no, but, but, no really, truly though, truly, it feels more sensual or yeah. or like loving uh, and caring as opposed to the yeah, which he does not have sex with the woman in the dark room, like, they, but that somehow feels more more sexualized. Like mm-hmm. it's more like um, yeah. just purely, you know, uh, transacting the urge or whatever, mm. as opposed to it, yeah. maybe that's what he was doing when he picked up this woman in the bar, but. I just feel like they share a moment of intimacy that um yeah that seems that just feels tonally slightly different but well, anyway i mean I, one I, difference I, is that he actually successfully does have sex with her he doesn't pass mm-hmm. out uh before they <laughs> manage to get there and so it, there's some kind of progress there right like he, the, the <laughs> yeah. earlier relationship is a lot more boarded it is it is interesting too that I mean of course he a lot of his frustrations as you pointed out Dan at the beginning is is because of his inability to have intimacy with Doris mm-hmm. the the woman that he he has sort of been in some kind of platonic esque I mean it's very strange relationship she's significantly younger than him he even notes this that like the age difference was was sort of I don't know inappropriate inappropriate or whatever yeah. and um, he finds himself like, I mean, I don't get the sense that they ever had any kind of sexual relationship. Um, It seems like they kind of just held hands on the bench and Mm -hmm. that was the extent of their relationship. And to to a certain extent, you might wonder whether that's just because he is unable at that point to have intimacy with another human being. That's partly why he runs away, perhaps, and, um, and feels sort of regret. And then in the end, he is having this moment of intimacy, which is, I feel it does suggest that he has progressed down yeah. a path of, you know, maybe now he can work towards becoming a normal socialized person or, or something like that, or at least ape it, um, yeah. uh, which would maybe lead him to have more satisfaction in his life. Because he's a guy who feels like he has, he's getting very little true satisfaction out of life. He's definitely like, you know, getting wasted and having moments of, 
you know, pleasure, but it doesn't feel like he's satisfied with his life. He's, he's in this constant state yeah. of striving. And I get that sense of he has relief almost at the end. He also has relief partly because he chooses to leave the master of his own yeah, accord, which right. is really important that he he does that on his own. And I feel like that moment is 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 crucial to, you know, to to that's reflective of that he has somehow evolved beyond the need to be in this kind of weird fucked yeah. up relationship with Lancaster. Yeah, I mean, um, not I to know. go all Kant on you or whatever, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, in the, at the beginning, the opening sequence is a picture of a human in a state of heteronomy, right? Like of like complete lack of yeah. lack of <laughs> autonomy or control over them over their own actions or state of mind, and then you know the the decision to leave the master. Right. It, and to go do his own thing. Like that's the first real act. I mean, well, no, it's like the second real act of autonomy in the movie. And both in both cases, it's uh, at least his autonomy in the movie. And in both yeah. cases, it's leaving. Right. It's it's getting yeah. out of there. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, what's the to, just to take the thing one step further? I mean, like the whole idea there is like the only true way to be free is to like follow the law that you give yourself. Right. To like yeah. not follow, not let outside forces dictate your behavior and so those those two moments uh seem like the the points in the in the movie where he's he seems like an agent in a way otherwise right. he's just being tossed around on a sea of 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 uh of waves right yeah yeah why don't we uh go over uh some of our favorite lines or scenes uh from the movie um so um I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with Laura on this one. So, do you have a favorite scene or favorite line or both? Um, yes. Okay. So it I it was gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna save what it was gonna be because maybe Don't, it's yours. Yeah, Justin. yeah. We can come. We can do go. We can do multiple rounds if, um, if we want. But this time round, it was when we the first introduction of um of Lancaster Dodd and and Freddie. Uh, it was one of my favorite scenes, but also has one of my favorite lines in it. Um, when he first, like, well, I suppose they met the night before, but yeah. Freddie doesn't remember. Oh, I see. So the, the processing scene. The processing mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. I think there's just like, there's like so much like charge to that scene. Um, and one thing I didn't mention when we were talking earlier, another aspect of the relationship that I kind of read it, read into this movie is not that I necessarily think that they're like romantically in love, but I see elements of like a romantic attraction in their relationship it the the one of the recent times that i watched it it really struck me as like the feeling it reminded me of the feeling of like being in love with somebody being attracted to somebody who's just definitely wrong for you <laughs> but you're like attracted to them on like a chemical that's why this nuclear is a, level this is a kind of uh marriage therapy for us this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah justin I'm is not talking about you rela- justin <laughs> but Justin, it's like, you know, Justin's just too wild. He's too appetitive. Uh, <laughs> it's true, man. I, I never leave the house. I haven't left the house in two weeks. Always drinking it's, his weird hooch. He's weird. But I think like the weird hooch too, like plays into like, you know, like when you feel like inebriated, when you like meet somebody that you're just like completely, yeah, in, you know, intoxicated. And talk, exactly. Yeah. I think that's like, that's the way that, that Lancaster feels. He's like, like being around Freddie's like drinking that weird hooch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like their connection anyway. So I love that scene. It's charged. It's like, it's really cool. But I also like when he introduces himself as a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical <laughs> philosopher, but above all, 
I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> you scooped me, man. That was going to be my line. What? Really? Wait, hold on. I was going to, the sorry. reason I was going to, I was going to shout out uh, Nacho Libre. Too. Me too. Wait, come on. Really? Yes. Do you want to say the line? Dan, do you know this line from Nacho no. Libre? <laughs> Justin. <laughs> You have to understand, I'll say I probably watched one one hundredth as many movies as you. So. I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it. So so the line the line in Nacho Libre is so at this point Nacho Libre played by Jack Black. He's wearing some very. He just came into some money and he's wearing some very fancy like. Um, he's a sweat polyester dude. clothes. It's a sweat and dude. he says uh, they're my recreation clothes. And she goes and this this woman he's trying to press. She goes oh they look expensive and he says thank you and he says they may have the appearance of riches, but beneath the clothes. We find a man, and beneath the man, we find his nucleus. Nucleus? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my favorite line. I'm just going to cut the actual yeah, part Yeah, no, that there. whole thing's going to go in. It's my I was going to, I can't believe that's really funny. But it's I also, like exactly, it's almost verbatim, this line. <laughs> that's beautiful. But above all, I am a man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we think about, we should we do an episode of Nacho we'll Libre? We think about it. Dan, did we tell you that Laura, we watched Nacho Libre when Laura was in labor? No, no, that's it was, uh, it was our labor really movie. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we brought actually, the laptop to the to the hospital. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, no, we we watched we didn't watch anything. We 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 had been halfway through painting an enormous painting that mm. was going to go in our in our bedroom and we finished the painting cuz we were like, well, it's now or never." <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Dan, uh favorite line scene? Well, so I was going to say the thing about him handing the note saying, do you want to fuck? Right. Uh, right, but right, right. So that so that I think is like just again, it encapsulates this thing about um, this 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 juxtaposition that recurs throughout the movie of uh, between like the lofty sort of supernatural ideals of of Dodd and the kind of appetitive counterexample of Freddie. But so um, so let me give a different one. So um I mean, in general, as I already said, I'm I'm sort of in love with the first 15 minutes because I just think it tells this incredibly compact story, origin story for Freddie, where mm. you just see him spiraling and spiraling and you just it just feels like you get so much information about this character. And yet there's just no like there's no voiceover telling you who he is. Yeah. It does, it's just, yeah. it's just it's like the the most efficient example of like showing you who somebody is that I can mm. think of in any movie but mm. so if there's if i'm going to narrow it down to one shot and a particular one that we haven't talked about already so so there's that scene where he's like cutting the coconuts open so that he can make drinks so there's one particular thing that i really like about that scene which is that before he cuts the coconut it's like he gets distracted for a minute and just like uh apes the motion of cutting his hand off with the yeah. with the with the machete and he takes two swings at it and just stops himself before he actually cuts himself both times but he kind of nicks himself on the second one and he checks it out and i just think that there's something amazing about that right it's it's this thing about freddie where it's like he just has these insane self-destructive impulses which is mm. so it, it's giving you that information about him in a way that you could never get from somebody saying it about him right mm -hmm. um but and and that he you know he manages not to quite act on all of them but then i think also it's this microcosm of this bigger theme in the movie which again is that like we're like 
we're like these stupid animals who have managed to create all this technology that we use mm. to do terrible things to ourselves, right? Like, so he's there in the South Pacific in this like incredibly bloody theater of war. And, you know, him with a machete almost cutting his hand off is like, you know, it's, it, is it, it's, it's like this miniature version of humans going around with their like nuclear weapons and napalm mm. blowing themselves up and, mm. and, uh, and like that's what happens when you give like a hominid <laughs> like <laughs> like control over nature, right? Like and I'm so, getting the I'm so getting that, the vibe that like you about. you don't think very highly of the human race. <laughs> no, I just I just think the axiomatic <laughs> truth about the human race is that we're that that we're apes, right? Like I, and, and I just and I, and I just think like if you all of the dumbest things that philosophers have ever said uh, result from them pretending that's not true and. Uh, <laughs> And that's the thing that you always need to remind yourself of. <laughs> <laughs> but this is coming from the guy who was just quoting Kant earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I don't believe Kant. The er version of that guy, of that philosopher. <laughs> that was part of a reading of somebody else's movie. Yeah, yeah fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I hereby do not endorse Kant. Uh, <laughs> renouncing the cunt. All right. How about uh, here's the scene that I like. Uh, I already talked about this. I think this is why we, we're coming back to the parts we already we already went over as like, man, that's a great part. But I love the skeptic at the at the dinner party. And I just it's it's so it's so confrontational. And um, and and it, it it sort of gets at first he's he's got it and then he loses his cool and he says, Oh, if, if, you, if you if you if you already know the answers to your questions, then why ask? Pig fuck. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I well, love that. Second he repeats the if you know the answers to the questions yes. why you ask. He says that twice. And the first and and the first, first time, time he's it, got it cool. The first time it's sort of like an impressive line. It's like, yeah. hey, that's a good rhetorical strategy here because it's if you think about it too hard, it doesn't make sense. Like it's yeah. good to ask questions. That, you know, it's, I mean, the point of it is that not that he's asking this guy a question. The point is that he's challenging him, right? Yeah. But it's, but it really does redirect the flow of the conversation. But then the second time he does it and he cracks. He loses it. And so like a good question is like, you know, when we first see them roll into this townhouse in New York with what's her name, who's the, who's their kind of Mildred, I think. Yeah. Mildred. Um, she's clearly very impressed with him at that stage. She just lent him her yacht, you know, for like yeah. a few weeks. Um, he, she's hosting his his like brainwashing party, and um, <laughs> and you know she's clearly on board. And so like, but then very soon after that, they're like fleeing the scene, and she's suing him, right? Yeah. And so an interesting question yeah. is like, what is the moment at which that happens? Mm. And obviously, eventually, Freddie throws a piece of fruit at the skeptic guy, but. I think probably the real moment at which it turns is the moment when he says that line, the, yeah. the pig fuck line, because it's it's just clear to to lots of people in the room that like at that moment that he doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. Like he like it's it's a you see the you see the seams in his like yeah, genius you see costume. A crack. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could it could be that or it could just be that like I, I mean, I was sort of thinking that it's like they're just like they can't abide you know it's a little bit like um it's a little bit like uh the the republicans who can't support trump they're just like i just can't abide by this he breaks all the rules of decorum right he swears in public he's he's uncouth and and I, you know i wonder if it's if he it's disrespects if it's, veterans yeah I, yeah exactly you know exactly it's like he he like didn't like you know 
follow some weird arcane procedure and that's the reason I hate Trump. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, I wonder if it's sort of similar in that like he swore in public and that's just like you just do not do that. Like we are high yeah. society people. I don't know. But but you're right that totally you also get that impression that he, he, he the, the, the veneer has broken. I mean, then, it cuts yeah. to Mildred kind of like looking uncomfortable even before yeah. Freddie throws the fruit. And but yeah. but it's like so something has like fallen yeah. apart at that moment already. And then Freddie throwing the fruit just makes it come like publicly known that yeah. things have fallen apart. Right. That's because mm -hmm. it's just, it, that's just so completely beyond. Well, he, again, he's this rationalist, right? Like this self-proclaimed rationalist and said, and he, he resorts to, you know, calling somebody a name and then having yeah. his crony throw, yeah, <laughs> throw a, exactly. a tomato at, you know, at the guy. So do you have another, I know Laura has another favorite line. I do. This is something you do for a billion years or not at all. This isn't fashion. Yeah, that's the that's like one of the best lines in the movie. I love that, and I feel like we say it to each other. Yeah, yeah, we say. <laughs> <laughs> if like if Laura, if like one of us is not showing like suitable um, amount of um, you know dedication to whatever task, like caring for our <laughs> child or something, <laughs> yeah. that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. good. It's good Luckily, with childcare, it's only like. 25 years or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just feels not, like or a, a lifetime, years. not a billion years, not yeah. multiple lifetimes. I also just side note, like, like how much Lancaster Don keeps clinging to the trillion thing. <laughs> the skeptic is like, I don't think, you know, life is not known to have been. And he's like, trillions of years. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, scientists, you know, they can get things wrong too. <laughs> like, I'm not breaking down off of the trillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doubled down on the trillion. Oh, I yeah, liked yeah. it. In being able to access past lives, we are able to treat illnesses that may have started back thousands, even trillions of years. Trillions? With a T, sir. <laughs> the Earth is not understood to be more than a few billion years old. Well, even the smartest of our current scientists can be fooled. Yes. You can understand skepticism. Yes, can you oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, I like this line. It's also at the end. It's um, Lancaster Dodd. It's uh, when when he's sort of giving Freddie the ultimatum about whether to leave or stay. And he says, if you leave me now in the next life, because Freddie says, well, maybe in the next life I'll come. And, and he's like, no, if you leave me now in the next life, you will be my sworn enemy and I will show you no mercy. <laughs> I feel like it's such, <laughs> it's such a dramatic, <laughs> so he's so dramatic. I know. I love it. Um, Dan, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, My pleasure. For giving us all this time and insight into this movie, especially with the Scientology stuff, which uh, we we are not obviously not prepared. No, we love when our <laughs> guests so are way more prepared, yeah, prepared than us, which is usually yes. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, thank you, really. On that was that was amazing. Um, and Dan, uh, where do you want to shout out some social media stuff? No, I mean I'm Daniel W. Harris on Twitter, but uh, I'm not going to tweet about anything at all related to this movie there, so. <laughs> <laughs> I give you facts. They don't give they me are not facts. A what facts? They are fucking facts! What facts? Fuck, 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 fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Why don't you kick fuck the you. bed some more? Fuck you! Fuck you, you fuck lazy you. ass piece of fuck shit! You. I'm not lazy! I'm done! You're oh, fucking lazy! No, you make shit You're fucking lazy! You I make shit up! You hate you! Oh, You're so hateful! Oh, they do! Who You're fucking likes you. you except for me? Nobody. Except for me. No, you don't fucking Who like likes me. you except for me? Except for me. You shut up. I'm the only one who likes you. Fuck you too. Fuck you. Um, 
Uh, you can find us at um, cowspod.wordpress.com and we are at cowspod on Twitter. We only tweet about stupid movie stuff. So if you are interested in stupid movie stuff, uh, then you can follow us there. Uh, okay, and uh, our next episode will be Clueless with uh, Laura's and my good friend Andrew Rosen. Woohoo! Yeah, so uh, that's coming up next uh, in two weeks. And uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and a review. Thank you very much, and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Okay, I'm going to stop recording now. Oh my God. Dan doesn't have me running around our basement with a mirror and he was playing pink noise. Something about bass traps and acoustic. <laughs> Basically, he wants to put giant pieces of styrofoam on our wall. And, <laughs> I nice. mean, foam, whatever. I, I kept being like, so you want to put trash on the walls? I'm so confused. <laughs> Not trash. Not trash. I didn't know you were this serious. Um, okay.